are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So we have come to the seventh and final Sunday in the season of Eastertide. And doesn't Easter Day seem like a long time ago now? This is a 50-day season, which means that not only is it longer than Lent, which is not an insignificant thing, but also that it carries us right up to the Feast of Pentecost. There is a Jewish Feast of Pentecost that comes 50 days after Passover. So we follow that pattern, and we'll observe that day next week. For tonight, we have before us two texts. But I want to set aside the Acts reading and spring off of the text from John. On the seventh Sunday in Eastertide, the Gospel reading is drawn from the 17th chapter of John in all three years in the lectionary. It's what's often called Jesus' high priestly prayer. It fills the entire chapter and comes on the heels of fully four chapters of material from the upper room scene in John. That's a good deal more text than is found in any of the other Gospels. Compare Mark, for instance, who includes all of nine verses set in the upper room space. But as I've said before, John is writing considerably later than the other three, And he takes great liberty in using such scenes to tell the reader what he has come to know about Jesus. In this portion of Jesus' prayer, the focus is on the faith movement that he knows will spring from the work and faith of those disciples. I ask not only on behalf of these Jesus begins, by these, he means these disciples. But I ask also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. The prayer is ultimately that all may be indwelt by the Father and Son and express their unity in a love empowered by the Spirit, that will enable them to continue spreading the news, the good news, far and wide. There is, in a sense, already resolution offered in this prayer, that this great love is unfolding into the world and will spring like wildfire, spread like wildfire, which it did over the next 300 years ultimately being spread to the very emperor of the Roman Empire. So you might be tempted to stop right there in this sermon. We could all sing an alleluia and carry on straight to the sharing of bread and wine together because it seems so lovely that what Jesus prayed came to be. And yet, for all of the abundance of great good news, there is also much that's been marked by sorrow and brokenness, disunity, and loss. I got to thinking about this during the week prior to this past one, 
when I was out for a conversation with one of the younger folks from our community. This guy has a a searching and probing mind, is always ready to dig deeper into areas and ideas that are new to him. So they're great conversations that range all over the place. And somehow on that day, our conversation made its way to the figure of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great theologian and witness to our faith who was ultimately executed by the Third Reich in the closing months of the Second World War. Bonhoeffer was born in Germany in 1906. He had an earned doctorate at the age of 21, which is a terrifying thought. 21 with an earned doctorate. He was too young to be ordained, so he sailed off to New York to teach and study at Union Theological Seminary, where he found himself worshiping at the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, one of the great black church communities that is still very active right up to this day. Unimpressed by what he saw as rather thin academic character of the American seminaries, Bonhoeffer was profoundly moved and influenced by the faith and life of that black church. It had a lasting impact on his own life and thought. On returning to Germany, he was ordained. But soon enough, the Third Reich had assumed power. And in 1934, Bonhoeffer was one of the signatories to the Barman Declaration, a document drafted by Karl Barth and adopted by what was known as the Confessing Church. This declaration unflinchingly insisted that Christ, not the Fuhrer, Christ was the true head of the church, and it called upon all clergy to follow a path of resistance. Sadly, by some estimates, only 20% of German clergy followed the challenges of the Barman Declaration, the vast majority capitulating to the Nazi regime and even collaborating with its systemic program of wiping out the Jews in Europe. In response to that capitulation, Bonhoeffer wrote his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship which was published in Germany in 1937, so dangerous times, under the title Following. It only came into English in 1948, three years after its author's death. In that little book, he picked up on a concept he'd learned from the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell Sr., the pastor of the Abyssinian Baptist Church. The concept was cheap, Grace. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer wrote, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace, he wrote, is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. 
Costly grace is what Bonhoeffer discovered. One had to live out in the face of the sort of horrors he was witnessing under the Third Reich. I will quote him at some length from The Cost of Discipleship. He writes, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his Son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. It was living under such costly grace that led Bonhoeffer to temporarily set aside his core pacifist convictions, and he held core nonviolent convictions, to set those aside and take part in a plot to assassinate Hitler. In a Christmas letter written in 1942 and later published under the title, After Ten Years, Bonhoeffer wrote, quote, The great masquerade of evil has played havoc with all our ethical concepts. He knew that for a time he must set down what he believed were the core claims of the Sermon on the Mount in order to follow God's more urgent call to preserve life for all victimized by that war, notably but not exclusively the Jews of Europe. This, you see, was a brilliant man, a clear thinker, a faithful believer who wanted nothing more than to be true to the God he'd come to both love and revere. And it cost him costly grace, rather than just soothed or comforted him. And he would have had it no other way. I think, too, of a conversation I had one lovely summer afternoon some 20 years ago with a woman named Val Macbeth, whose husband, Sid, I had buried a few months earlier. At the time, I was parish priest at the Church of St. Stephen and St. Bede in Silver Heights, and Val and Sid were elderly members of the parish on my regular visitation roster. I'd seen the two of them often enough over the years, always arriving with a communion set and a book of common prayer. They had their own copies of the book, thank you very much. And I celebrated the sacrament with them sitting at their dining room table. Sid was a curious sort of man, 
always dressed perfectly, always concerned about the shape of his lawn and his flower beds, or about the way that the snow had been shoveled from the driveway. It needed to be perfect. Always deeply appreciative of the way that I presided at that simple communion, in the old way, the proper way, from the Book of Common Prayer. That day, Val asked me, just a month or two after Sid had died, she asked me if I knew why he'd been so buttoned down, so careful about things like straight ties, weedless flower beds, and his crack-free driveway. It was the only way he could cope with the world, she told me. And then explained that after his death, an autopsy had been done on his brain to determine the extent of damage done by a shell in battle in the Second World War. Now remember, I'm there in around 2002, 2003. We're talking about a wound from the 1940s. They found a deep, wide crevice in his brain, she explained. All those things he did to keep life in order were a part of living with that deep wound. Everyone who saw action in that war was a victim, Jamie. And then she talked about her own experiences as a nurse in that war, how she'd been one of the small team of medical people who had accompanied the Allied forces at the liberation of Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. I saw those poor people hanging like skeletons to the fences as we opened the gates, she told me. I saw what had been done to them. I saw the Beast of Belsen, a name given to Joseph Kramer, a commandment of that camp who'd been notoriously cruel. I saw the Beast of Belsen and what he'd done to those people. After you see something like that, she said, it's hard to believe in anything anymore. Bonhoeffer's beliefs and convictions, along with that poor woman's pained memories, are oddly redemptive, I think. Not that I'd try to turn them into plaster saints, memorialized with all of the hard edges sanded off. But I see them and so many others who've walked hard paths and made costly decisions standing at the heart of what Jesus is ultimately praying here in his gospel. The glory that you have given me, Father, Jesus prays, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. Jesus' glory, you see, is also not cheap, for it's borne on a cross and ultimately shared through people as plain and as fallible as you and me and Bonhoeffer and Val Macbeth 
and all the other disciples and saints who've tried to walk faithfully and steadfastly before us in a world that so often shows more fragmentation than it does fullness. I will close with something I think would very much resonate with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and which certainly resonates with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Christ comes to us, Robert Capon once wrote. Christ comes to us in the brokenness of our health, in the shipwreck of our family lives, in the loss of all possible peace of mind, even in the very thick of our sins. He saves us in all our disasters, not from them. He emphatically does not promise to meet only the odd winner of the self-improvement lottery. He meets us all in our endless and inescapable losing. And oddly, that is the best good news to proclaim on this, the final Sunday in Eastertide. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.